This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Atrial Fibrillation Overview and Updates. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. Chinese doctors have been examining and evaluating patient pulses since the 5th century BCE. Pulse diagnosis remains an important aspect of traditional Chinese medicine and is one of the four assessments of major assessments of TCM. It is practiced by applying firm fingertip pressure to several locations on the radial artery of both wrists. There are over 30 different pulse diagnoses, including tsumai, meaning rapid or irregular. Despite detecting irregular heartbeats for ages, linking these pulsations to electrical activity of the heart didn't happen until the 19th century when the first electrocardiographs were recorded. British physiologist Augustus Waller was credited with inventing the first practical ECG machine in 1887. A few years later, Dutch physician and physiologist Willem Eindhoven began using ECGs for medical diagnosis. He described a number of electrocardiographic features of cardiovascular disease. For example, in 1906, he published the first ECG showing atrial fibrillation. He later received the Nobel, Peace, uh, Nobel Prize for his groundbreaking work. To discuss in more depth the most common sustained arrhythmia, atrial fibrillation, and the updates in management are two of Ohio State University's cardiology experts. I am pleased to introduce Assistant Professor of Cardiology, Dr. Jim Liu, and Assistant Professor of Cardiology, Dr. Salvatore Savona. Jim is a non-invasive cardiologist, and he will be taking us through the presentation, evaluation, risk factor management, and stroke prevention of AFib. And Sal is an electrophysiologist. His discussion will focus on rhythm and rate control strategies. Jim, Sal, welcome to MedNet. Thanks for having us. Thank you. 
Well, I can't wait to hear more about your talk, but Jim, just how prevalent is AFib? So AFib is very common. It's something that we encounter very frequently within cardiology, but it's also something that's seen in multiple other subspecialties. I'll get in a little bit more about the details about this later. Okay, and Sal, what, a, what does a typical AFib patient look like? In general, patients with atrial fibrillation are gonna be older, and we do see other risk factors associated with it, like obesity and sleep apnea, but it can also happen in people who do not have these risk factors. Okay, thanks Sal. Before we get started with today's talk, I wanted to let you know about our podcast. You can listen to all 120 of our programs via podcast by searching for MedNet21 on your CME on your podcast app. You can also find the whole catalog of our programs on our website at ccme.osu.edu. The slides will be available there and you can also get your CME credit and ABIM MOC points by taking the post-test after the program. If you have any questions, please feel free to send those to us using the Ask a Question feature on the webcast player. Now let's get started. Jim? All right, thanks, Jingjing. So today, Sal and I are gonna talk a little bit about the overview of AFib and we'll also feature some of the updates. We're gonna go over some of, the, some of the evaluation of AFib. We'll talk about the importances of lifestyle and risk factor modification. We'll discuss stroke prevention and also go over some of the differences in rate and rhythm management. So why is it important to talk about AFib? As we mentioned earlier, AFib is considered to be the most common sustained arrhythmia. Right now in the United States, it's estimated that there are about three to six million people that have some form of AFib. This number is really only projected to increase over the next couple of decades here. Currently, for adults over the age of 40, the overall lifetime risk of having AFib is about one in four, which again highlights the common how common of a condition this is. Now, while AFib can affect uh, adults at any age, it's really more common in adults who are older. And so as you can see on this chart on the right right here, the prevalence of AFib only increases with age. The other reason that AFib is important is that it carries very serious healthcare implications. Currently in the United States, there are estimated over 400,000 hospitalizations with AFib as a primary diagnosis. A patient who is diagnosed with AFib is estimated to be about twice as likely to be hospitalized compared to a patient who doesn't have AFib. And finally, AFib contributes to almost 100,000 deaths per year in the United States. Now, all of this adds to the burden of the healthcare system, and when this translates into costs, AFib contributes to about $26 billion to the U.S. healthcare annually. What exactly is AFib? So AFib is an arrhythmia. This is characterized by very rapid, uncoordinated atrial activity, and it results in ineffective atrial contraction. So as opposed to sinus rhythm, where the sinus node triggers an electrical stimulus that results in a coordinated atrial contraction, uh, this is replaced by very rapid uh, firing from the atrium. The atrium in AFib is firing at up to 500 beats per minute. And when this is happening, think of the atrium as just kind of quivering in place. When these impulses conduct down to the ventricle, the ventricle can also conduct irregularly. So on an EKG, the hallmark features of AFib are usually number one, 
having an irregularly irregular RR interval. Number two, the absence of any distinct repeating P waves. And number three, irregular atrial activity. Now, you would think that diagnosing AFib on an EKG should be pretty straightforward, but in reality, it could be tricky. There are a lot of mimickers of AFib. This EKG right here shows a tracing that has a very undulating baseline, and at first glance, this could be confused for the irregular atrial activity in AFib. But if you look closely here, you can see P waves marching through the tracing, uh, especially on the bottom lead right there. So this is actually sinus rhythm, and the undulating activity is just artifact. The other thing to point out here is that the R to R intervals are regular, which also goes against AFib. This is an EKG that shows atrial flutter. Now, atrial flutter is a rhythm that's similar to AFib in that it could produce a irregularly irregular um, rhythm. But the key differentiating factor here is that the underlying atrial activity and atrial flutter should be regular. So on this EKG here, you see the typical regular sawtooth pattern of atrial flutter. Um, so as I mentioned, atrial flutter is very similar to AFib, but there are very, um, there are some differences when it comes to the treatment when compared to AFib. So that's why distinguishing flutter versus fib is very important. Here's another EKG that shows an irregular rhythm, but if you look closely here, you can see that there are clear P waves. And so this is sinus rhythm with premature atrial contractions. And finally, this is an EKG of an irregular rhythm. Um, but again, when you look closely here, there are P waves before all of the QRSs. And so this is actually, actually sinus arrhythmia. So in sinus arrhythmia, it's a normal sinus rhythm, but there are, there's uh, variability in the sinus beat, so it can produce an irregular rhythm. I left the read of the EKG of the computer, uh, the EKG read up here to show you that sometimes the computer is incorrect. And so I just wanna emphasize that you shouldn't only rely on the computer read of the EKGs, but really take a look at the tracings yourself too. Okay, so these are some of the terms that you may hear when uh, we're referencing AFib. So paracetamol AFib is AFib that terminates spontaneously or with intervention within seven days of onset. Persistent AFib is continuous AFib that is sustained for more than seven days. Long-standing persistent AFib is continuous AFib of more than 12 months in duration. Permanent AFib is when the provider and a patient both decide to stop making further attempts to restore sinus rhythm and to just leave the patient in AFib. Now, non-vivular AFib recently received an update in the guidelines back in uh, 2019. Previously, non-vivular AFib included um, AFib in the absence of rheumatic mitral stenosis, bioprosthetic or mechanical valves, and uh, mitral valve repairs. But now, um, with this most recent update, non-vivular AFib really only refers to AFib in the absence of moderate to severe mitral stenosis or mechanical heart valves. This becomes important later on when we start talking about anticoagulation as some anticoagulants are only approved for use in non-vivular AFib. Um, I want to talk a little bit just about the pathophysiology of AFib. So AFib is an arrhythmia that originates in the left atrium. Specifically, it comes from rapidly firing foci 
and the myocardial sleeves that extend into the pulmonary veins. Now, this becomes important later on when we're talking about procedures like AFib ablations because the ablation area is really targeting around these pulmonary veins. For the actual mechanism of AFib, this gets a little bit more complicated. Um, in general, it requires underlying structural atrial abnormalities such as fibrosis, atrial dilatation, or hypertrophy. There also needs to be some form of electrical triggers, and these are usually, as I mentioned, the pulmonary vein uh, foci. And then also there are um, underlying atrial electrical abnormalities. All three of these things, when combined, can trigger AFib and propagate it. Now, there's a term out there that um, goes AFib begets AFib. What this is referring to is that once someone has AFib, the AFib itself can cause further atrial structural abnormalities, namely dilation of the left, left atrium, which then can also create more AFib. So think of it as a vicious cycle. Here are some of the risk factors for developing AFib. I mentioned earlier that structural heart disease can really increase the risk of AFib. So um, it's not surprising that a lot of forms of heart disease, especially um, heart failure or valvular heart disease, where the left atrium is really impacted, can increase AFib. So in heart failure, a lot of times the left atrial pressure is elevated and it can cause left atrial enlargement. Valvular heart disease, especially ones that impact the left atrium directly, like mitral stenosis or mitral regurgitation, can uh, um, promote AFib. Other forms of heart disease, like coronary disease, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and congenital heart disease can also lead to AFib. Conditions outside of the heart can also um, impact AFib. Things like obesity, hypertension, diabetes, sleep apnea, hyperthyroidism, and chronic kidney disease are all risk factors for de developing AFib. Other factors, such as alcohol, so there's a, a syndrome called holiday heart syndrome where AFib can occur after an episode of binge drinking. We often also see AFib in the post-op setting, so after surgeries where um, the autonomic nervous system is very activated, there is a surge in catecholamines, sometimes this can trigger AFib. Likewise, infection and inflammation can increase AFib. And finally, there are also some genetic factors that could predispose to AFib. The symptoms of AFib can vary widely. So for some people, the symptoms can be highly symptomatic. So these would include things like palpitations, shortness of breath, chest discomfort. For other patients, the symptoms can be a little bit more subtle. They may have only some weakness or fatigue or just a general sense of malaise. And in a lot of patients, AFib can be completely asymptomatic. The severity and the extent of these symptoms um, can also depend on the patient's age, if they have any other underlying heart conditions, or also how rapid the AFib is conducting. If AFib is beating very rapidly, this may be more likely to cause symptoms, and once the, symptom, once the heart rates are better controlled, the symptoms may be better tolerated. Now, AFib can lead to several complications. Um, as we all know, stroke is one of them, and actually stroke is the most common complication of AFib. But AFib has also been shown to increase the risk of cognitive impairment and dementia. Uh, it can increase the risk of mortality and also myocardial infarction, and also lead to heart failure. So for a lot of patients who have AFib that's beating very rapidly and the heart rates are uncontrolled, 
it could lead to something called a tachycardia-induced cardiomyopathy, where the ejection fraction is actually reduced because of the rapid beating AFib. So let's talk a little bit about the evaluation of AFib. Once you have a patient who is diagnosed with AFib, usually the first step is to get a baseline EKG if that hasn't been done already. The reason this is important is that the EKG allows you to uh, take a look for other signs of heart disease like LVH or underlying ischemia. You can also look for other conduction abnormalities such as pre-excitation or um, types of AV block. Getting an, an idea of the QT interval is important as well because this may play um, an, uh, a role later down the road when you're thinking about using an antiarrhythmic. A lot of the antiarrhythmics that we use can prolong the QT. Next, it's generally a good idea for every new patient with a new diagnosis of AFib to get a baseline transthoracic echo. This is to look for any kind of structural heart disease. You want to have an idea of what their ejection fraction is, whether or not they have some kind of structural heart disease that could lead to the AFib or vice versa, has the AFib caused some kind of cardiomyopathy. In addition, as I mentioned earlier, valvular heart disease can really contribute to AFib, so the echo will assess for that. And also, um, this gives you an opportunity to look at the left atrial size. In patients with AFib, as I mentioned, the left atrium becomes enlarged, and having a very enlarged left atrium can be a sign of chronicity of the AFib. Um, finally, getting basic labs is important, such as a chemistry and CBC. Um, checking for renal function will impact certain um, anticoagulants and their dosing, as well as antiarrhythmics and the dosing of those. And then also, other tests, uh, uh, getting a thyroid function is very important too because hyperthyroidism can contribute to AFib. Now, other tests may be optional, especially if there are other signs and symptoms. For example, if you have signs of ischemia, it might be reasonable to get a stress test. Um, if there are signs of sleep apnea, getting a sleep study might be important. Finally, optional uh, testing would be ambulatory monitoring devices. Here are some of the options for monitoring devices that are available. So a Holter monitor is a wearable monitor that is generally worn for a short period of time, usually about 24 to 48 hours. This can be very useful in patients with permanent AFib where you want to get an idea of what their overall rate control is with the AFib. If you want something with a longer duration of monitoring, there are event monitors and mobile cardiac telemetry devices. These are also external wearable devices. You can use these for up to 30 days to monitor someone's rhythm. If you e need even longer duration of monitoring than that, there are implantable loop recorders too. So these are devices that are inserted under the skin and they can detect someone's rhythm uh, at all times. Generally, the battery in these lasts for around three years. Finally, in patients who have a pacemaker or defibrillator artery in place, these devices can also be used to assess for the AFib burden or if, uh, or if the presence of any underlying AFib. Now recently, there's been a lot of popularity with personal devices and wearable devices. There are a lot of these available to consumers now on the market that can uh, detect the heart rhythm. The Apple Watch is actually one of the most popular ones. And in 2018, the FDA approved the use of the Apple Watch to detect AFib. Think of this uh, Apple Watch as actually a tool, a supplemental tool that can help detect rhythm and it's really not meant to replace current, um, widely accepted, established tools to um, diagnose arrhythmias. With that said, though, these are still very useful. During the pandemic, um, the FDA actually 
provide guidance to support the use of these non-invasive monitoring devices, including the Apple Watch, to help with telemedicine. So this use allowed patients to send a single lead EKG to their physicians or providers uh, to help uh, with telemedicine. Here is an example of a tracing that was captured uh, using the Apple Watch that was sent. Um, as you can see here, it provides a single lead EKG, and a lot of times the quality of this can be pretty good. And in this patient who had palpitations or tachycardia, um, we were able to confidently tell them that this was not AFib. All right, next we're gonna move on to the management of AFib. And when we're talking about management, we're really gonna focus on the four pillars of uh, AFib management. And those would include, number one, managing lifestyle risk factor, number two, anticoagulation, number three, rate control, and number four, rhythm control. So there are a lot of other factors out there that can contribute to AFib, and controlling these factors is really important in terms of reducing the burden of AFib. Some of these include obesity, sleep apnea, physical inactivity, diabetes, hypertension, and alcohol. I wanna focus briefly here on obesity because um, the update to the guidelines recently uh, really focus on this. So obesity is known to be a very strong risk factor for AFib. Recently, there have been a lot of studies that have come out to study weight loss and AFib, and it's been shown that a weight loss of at least 10% of the body weight can reduce the burden of AFib. Reaching this 10% weight loss not only um, slows the progression down from paracetamol to persistent AFib, but can also be effective in reversing persistent to paracetamol AFib. Likewise, bariatric surgery in obese patients with AFib has also been shown to reduce the risk of new AFib and reduce the recurrence of AFib after an ablation. And so for these reasons, um, there was a new recommendation that came out in the most recent guidelines that states that for overweight and obese patients with AFib, weight loss combined with risk factor modification is recommended. In terms of the other lifestyle and risk uh, factors here, so for example, for physical activity, it's recommended to achieve at least 150 minutes a week of moderate, to, uh, of moderate intensity exercise. For patients with sleep disordered breathing, like sleep apnea, it's recommended to get that under control to help reduce AFib. Um, the same goes for diabetes and hypertension. Smoking also really increases the risk of AFib. So COPD is an independent risk factor for AFib, and so smoking cessation uh, may help reduce the risk of AFib as well. And then finally, alcohol consumption. Um, drinking more than 14 drinks per week has been significantly um, shown to increase the risk of AFib. And so if you have a patient who is consuming moderate to high levels of alcohol with AFib, it's really recommended to cut back on that. Notice one thing that I put, didn't put on this list was actually caffeine. So you might think that increasing caffeine intake might increase the risk of AFib, but actually the studies have shown that that hasn't been the case. And actually some, some studies show that um, caffeine may have a protective effect when it comes to AFib. So when it comes to recommending um, limiting caffeine intake, that really hasn't been as much of a, a recommendation when it comes to reducing AFib burden. All right, let's move on to talking about stroke prevention here. So I mentioned earlier that stroke is the most frequent major complication of AFib. Having a non-bivalar AFib actually increases the risk of stroke by at least five times when compared to someone who doesn't have AFib. 
And when someone has a stroke that's a result of AFib, that stroke generally carries more severe disability and also is associated with an increased mortality compared to strokes um, not due to AFib. So uh, in AFib, we said earlier that the atrium just isn't contracting effectively. And as a result, blood can become stagnant in certain areas of the heart, namely the left atrial appendage. And if a blood clot forms there, it could leave the heart and go to the brain and cause a stroke. I want to also point out here that the risk of stroke in AFib is independent of the AFib type, meaning paroxysmal versus persistent versus permanent AFib doesn't really factor into the stroke risk when it comes to AFib. So here are some images from a transesophageal echo showing the left atrial appendage. Um, this green arrow here is pointing to the left atrial appendage. Um, we can only really see this structure on transesophageal echo and uh, we can't see the structure on a transthoracic echo. In this example here, this is a normal patient, um, and this is a normal-looking appendage with no thrombus in it. On this next patient here with AFib, you can see here that the appendage is filled with a smoky appearance. Um, this is actually a spontaneous echo contrast, and it's a sign of very stagnant blood flow um, or venous stasis here. And at the tip of the appendage here, there's probably evidence of an early thrombus that's forming. Here's another example here of a TEE on a patient with AFib. In addition to the spontaneous echocontrast in the appendage, you see this more solidified structure here that the arrow is pointing to. That is actually a thrombus in the appendage. Now, TE is still considered to be the gold standard when it comes to evaluating the appendage for um, thrombus, but actually, recently, there's been increasing evidence and interest in looking at cardiac CT. So cardiac CT can also be used to visualize the left atrial appendage. This image on the, right, on the left here um, shows a normal-looking left atrial appendage. The image on the right actually shows an appendage with thrombus in it. This can become a very uh, convenient way of using, of looking for uh, left atrial appendage in patients with AFib. Uh, number one, it's non-invasive. And number two, currently for our patients who undergo AFib ablation, most require a CT evaluating the pulmonary vein anatomy. And that allows us to um, have an opportunity to rule out left atrial appendage thrombus rather than having them do a TEE. All right, so how do we determine which patients with AFib need to be treated for um, stroke prevention? Well, this is where the CHAS-VASC score comes in. Um, the recommendation clearly states that the CHAS-VASC score is used for stroke risk assessment. What this is, is each letter of CHAS-VASC correlates to a specific risk factor, and each of those letters also has a score attached to it. So the C stands for congestive heart failure. Now, this is heart failure that is both due to reduced ejection fraction and preserved ejection fraction. The H stands for hypertension. There are two A's here. The first A uh, is age of 75 or greater, and this gets a score of two. The other A on the bottom is age um, 65 to 74, which only gets a score of one. D stands for diabetes. S stands for stroke or TIA or a history of a systemic thromboembolism. And this also carries a um, higher weight with a score of two. V stands for vascular disease, which includes myocardial infarction, peripheral arterial disease, and aortic disease. The term myocardial, myocardial infarction was used here loosely, but actually in patients who also have 
underlying coronary disease that's severe or had a history of PCI, those would also qualify um, under this vascular disease risk factor. And then finally, on the bottom, S stands for sex. So the female sex actually carries a higher risk of stroke, and that's why um, that's given a score of one also. So you added the score of the CHAS-VASC, and um, the total score actually correlates with a annual stroke uh, risk here. So as you can see here, the higher the CHAS-VASC score, the higher the annual stroke rate. Currently, in the guidelines, um, for patients with AFib, for men with a CHAS-VASC score of two or more, or women with a CHAS-VASC score of three or more, oral anticoagulation is recommended for stroke prevention. This is an update um, most recently compared to before where it was just a CHAS-VASC score of two for both genders. The reason behind this is because um, while women are at a higher risk for stroke, that female sex was actually found to be more significant in women age 75 or more or if women had two or more non-gender related risk factors. Actually, for um, women who have a lower CHAS-VASC score, the risk of stroke when compared to men was similar. Now, in patients with a lower CHAS-VASC score, for example, a score of one for men or two for women, prescribing an anticoagulant for stroke prevention can be considered. And then finally, for very low CHAS-VASC scores, such as zero for men or one for women, um, it's reasonable to omit anticoagulation. Again, I want to highlight here that the use of anticoagulant really should be based off of the risk for thrombolism, in other words, a CHAS-VASC score, and it shouldn't depend on whether AFib is paroxysmal, persistent, or permanent. We have a lot of options right now um, that you can choose from for, using, uh, for anticoagulants to use for stroke prevention. These include warfarin, which has been around for the longest time, but also in the last decade or so, there have been several other newer medications. So these are dabigatran, rivaroxaban, apixaban, and adoxaban. And collectively, these are called the NOAX, uh, which stands for non-vitamin K oral antagonist, or DOAX, um, or direct acting oral anticoagulants. Um, and the most recent update to the guidelines, it states that DOAX are now recommended over warfarin in patients without moderate to severe mitral stenosis or a mechanical heart valve. Previously, the guidelines gave equal recommendation for DOAX and warfarin, but now, because there's been so much data that shows that the DOAX are not only um, non-inferior or sometimes even better than warfarin in stroke prevention, but they also have a better safety profile compared to warfarin. For patients with AFib who have mechanical heart valves, warfarin is still really the only option for anticoagulation. Um, also, for patients who really can't maintain a therapeutic range of INR on warfarin, DOACs are recommended. So here are all the separate DOACs that are used for AFib. There are currently four that are FDA approved. The Bigatran is the only one that is a direct thrombin inhibitor. Um, the other ones are Avroxaban, Apixaban, and Adoxaban are all direct 10A inhibitors. Each of these drugs have been compared directly to warfarin, and all of them have been shown to be non-inferior to warfarin when it comes to stroke prevention, and they've also been shown to be better than warfarin when it comes to hemorrhage. The exception here is that actually apixaban was shown to be um, not just non-inferior, but actually better than warfarin when it comes to stroke prevention. One of the um, benefits of these medications also is that they are generally very fast acting. Their peak effect is usually around two to three hours. And also their half-lives are usually short too, roughly around 12 hours.
Um, for each of these medications, there's a specific dosing. The Bigtran and Apixaban are given twice a day, whereas Rivaroxaban and Adoxaban are given once a day. All these medications also require dosing adjustments for different levels of renal function. Um, for Apixaban, the usual dose is 5 milligrams twice a day, but uh, there's an also lower dose that's 2.5 milligrams twice a day. But in order to use that lower dose, you have to have at least two of the following, either age of 80 or more, a body weight of uh, 60, or 60 kilograms or less, or a serum creatinine of 1.5 or more. Apixaban can also be used in patients with very severe um, renal dysfunction and patients on dialysis. Now, in the past, one of the main concerns of DOAX was that there was no reversal agent. Unlike for Coumadin, where you could give either vitamin K or FFP, um, there was nothing that could be given directly for these DOAX. Well, that isn't the case anymore. Now we have reversal agents. So for example, for dabigatran, there is a specific monoclonal antibody called adorosizumab that can be given to reverse it. Um, for rivaroxaban and apixaban, there's an agent called Andexanet alpha. And actually for all four of these, if you have someone who is bleeding, you can also give a prothrombin complex concentrate or PCC in short. I want to talk briefly just about um, what you need to think about when interrupting anticoagulation when patients uh, with AFib. So uh, in patients on warfarin, bridging is really recommended for patients with AFib and a mechanical valve. If a patient with AFib is present who doesn't have a mechanical valve, then you really have to consider the risks of stroke versus bleeding when determining if they need bridging. Um, lately, studies have shown that the absence of bridging has really been found to be non-inferior to bridging with low molecular weight heparin, and it's actually been associated with a lower risk of bleeding. So really, bridging with anticoagulation uh, may only be appropriate for very high-risk uh, patients for um, risk of thromboembolic, uh, thromboembolism. Now, in patients on DOAX, this makes it a lot easier. So again, the time of onset of DOAX is much shorter. Their half-lives are also shorter. In general, for low or moderate bleeding risk surgeries, stopping a day or two before surgery and then starting the day after is fine. For higher bleeding risk, stopping two or three days beforehand and starting two days after is generally acceptable too. What about aspirin? In the past, um, aspirin was considered for patients with AFib with a low bleeding, or with a low risk for stroke. Um, but actually, in the most recent guidelines, this is no longer the case. Aspirin really isn't recommend, recommended anymore. Previously, the term antithrombotic was used when um, uh, talking about stroke prevention, and this included anticoagulant and antiplatelet, but that term of antithrombotic has actually been replaced with only anticoagulant in the newer guidelines. All right, I want to talk briefly about some of the non-pharmacologic measures for stroke. So for patients who, for some reason, can't be on a blood thinner, whether it's bleeding risk or something else, there are options now that can be used to uh, help with stroke prevention. On this image right here, this is a TEE image that shows a Watchman device. So this device is actually a percutaneously inserted device that goes into the left atrial appendage right here, and it plugs up the appendage so that clots, if they form, they don't leave the appendage and cause stroke. This structure is, um, think of it as kind of like an umbrella or a parachute. It's got a wire cage with a fabric sheath over it. So in the most recent guidelines here, um, it says that uh, percutaneous left atrial appendage occlusion may be considered in patients at increased risk of stroke who have contraindication to long-term anticoagulation. Likewise, in patients who are undergoing um, heart surgery for other reasons, such as 
bypass surgery or heart valve surgery, surgical occlusion or excision of the left atrial appendage may be considered as well. Here's another image of the Watchman device. This is just a close-up view of it. And next is an actual 3D image that we took from TEE. This is looking at the Watchman device um, through the left atrium uh, on its actual face right there. All right, so now I'm going to hand over to Sal to talk about the rest of this. Thank you, Jim. All right, I'm going to talk a little bit more about left atrial appendage closure and how we evaluate patients for candidacy for this device. Three main things we'll talk about are who are candidates, how we evaluate them, and then how we manage them post-implant. In general, when we look at these patients, we try to determine if they're at high risk for bleeding or if they've had a previous history of a bleeding event, either major or non-major, such as a GI bleed or a bleed in their genital urinal tract. Patients also can be considered if they've had a labile INR while on Coumadin or if they're unable to take a NOAC or a DOAC, either due to non-compliance or cost of the medicine. Additionally, people who have a high-risk lifestyle, such as patients who mountain climb, can be considered if an injury during one of these um, activities would put them at high risk for bleeding. Now, when we evaluate them, we do need to ensure that they have a chads vas score of at least three, and they do have non-valvular atrial fibrillation. They do have to be a suitable candidate for anticoagulation, at least in the short term, and have to have an, be an appropriate candidate with the uh, qualifications we discussed above. There also needs to be no other need for anticoagulation other than atrial fibrillation. So if a patient has a mechanical heart valve, a left ventricular thrombus, or a clotting disorder, aside from atrial fibrillation that requires long-term anticoagulation, this would not be someone who we would implant this device in. Now post-implant, what these patients can expect is typically to be on an oral anticoagulant for 45 days post-procedure. Then we perform a transesophageal echo to ensure the device is well-seated, doesn't have a leak or a thrombus. And then at that time, we would typically transition them to dual antiplatelet therapy for six months. And then after six months, we would transition to chronic aspirin therapy. Now the device, uh, specifically the Watchman device, was recently approved for implant with dual antiplatelet therapy only, uh, but this is definitely dependent on the implanter in terms of preference. Now I'm going to move on more to how we manage atrial fibrillation. Now there's two main ways we do this, either with rate control or rhythm control. When we're Pursuing a rate control strategy, we typically introduce an AV nodal blocking agent, and if that's ineffective, we sometimes may also use digoxin. But there are instances when we are unable to achieve adequate rate control, and we do need to do a more aggressive strategy, such as a pacemaker and then ablation of the atrioventricular node. Now, if we move on to a rhythm control strategy, there's two main uh, ways that we manage it, one in the immediate term and then also chronically. In the immediate term, um, one of the options is to perform a cardioversion, either chemically or electrically. And chronically, we manage atrial fibrillation with an antiarrhythmic drug 
or an ablation or a combination of both. Now I just uh, wanted to include this image just to review the electrical anatomy of the heart. So um, as we start from the top of the right atrium where the SVC joins the right atrium, we have our sinoatrial node, and then electricity travels to the atrioventricular node, sometimes through preferential tracks, as indicated by the yellow uh, bars, and then it traverses the atrioventricular node down our Hiss-Purkinje system. When we are pursuing a rate control strategy, as this black bar indicates, our main goal is just to block the AV node we're really not doing anything to impact atrial fibrillation itself. So who are patients that we would consider a primary rate control strategy? One, as we discussed, permanent atrial fibrillation where we've decided that we will no longer pursue a rhythm control strategy. And in general, we identify these patients if they're completely asymptomatic with preserved LV function. So a patient who has systolic heart failure, even in the absence of symptoms, we would try to avoid a rate control strategy. Now these patients do present to the hospital frequently, and when we are acutely managing them, they most frequently need IV medications in order to control their heart rate. And this can be achieved either with an IV beta blocker, such as esmolol or levetalol, if their blood pressure is acceptable, or a non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker, such as IV diltiazem. One caveat is that if someone is in decompensated heart failure, calcium channel blockers can actually be a negative inotropic agent and can worsen their heart failure. This is mainly seen in patients with systolic heart failure, but it should generally be avoided in patients presenting with congestive heart failure to the hospital. Our chronic heart rate goals in patients should in general be less than 80 beats per minute at rest. But if someone has, is asymptomatic with normal left ventricular function, a more lenient goal of less than 110 beats per minute can be pursued if there's difficulty controlling their heart rate. Now this chart highlights the different options of the different classes that we've discussed. Common beta blocker medications include metoprolol, carvedilol, atenolol, and propranolol, and we achieve rate control by inhibiting beta-1 receptors with these medicines. Some common side effects that can be experienced are depression, erectile dysfunction, uh, bradycardia, and fatigue. The common calcium channel blockers used are diltiazem and verapamil, and these target the calcium ion entry into the cell and they delay depolarization. Some things that you may need to talk about with patients also are that they can cause constipation as well as lower extremity edema. Now digoxin is a medicine that can also be used but it's not preferred um, and this slows the AV conduction via the sodium potassium ATPase and through multiple mechanisms. This drug, as we all know, has many potential side effects, including at toxic levels, ventricular tachycardia and heart block. It does require drug level monitoring, and if there is toxicity, it, it may actually require an infusion of antibodies to the drug. Now, the most durable way to control someone's heart rate is through this strategy of a pacemaker and an AV node ablation. 
The only problem with that, with that is once you've made that decision, it can't be reversed. So we really want to make sure that they are intolerant of medical therapy. This image shows a pacemaker implanted with three leads. Uh, this would be a biventricular pacemaker. Typically, a patient who's undergoing an AV node ablation only needs a right ventricular lead or the addition of a coronary sinus lead if they have LV systolic function. However, there are new devices such as leadless pacemakers, which is a single, essentially a single RV lead implanted directly into the septum of the heart, which avoids the need for leads. Now, after we've implanted this device, we then perform an ablation of their atrioventricular node, and every beat is controlled by the pacemaker moving forward. You may see patients after this with a high heart rate of 80 beats per minute, which is something that we program initially after the ablation, and then we drop it to 60 beats per minute after about four to six weeks after the ablation. Now we'll move on to rhythm control strategies. These are employed on patients that have symptomatic atrial fibrillation, LV dysfunction and heart failure, and as we've discussed, our patients who have non-permanent, such as paroxysmal or persistent atrial fibrillation. In the acute setting, these can be managed either with a, an electrical cardioversion or a chemical cardioversion with different agents such as sotalol, amiodarone, or flecainide. Prior to any cardioversion, chemical or electrical, it's very important that the patient has an assessment of when they went into atrial fibrillation and their anticoagulation. Everything I discuss related to cardioversion is independent of the CHADS-VAS score. So if this is a 40-year-old patient with no risk factors, it's the same as if they're 75 with four or five risk factors. So three to four weeks prior to the, if they're on anticoagulation, we need to make sure it's uninterrupted for at least three to four weeks prior to the cardioversion, or if they're not on a blood thinner and it's been over 48 hours since the onset of atrial fibrillation, there needs to be some assessment of the left atrial appendage to make sure there is no thrombus, and this can be achieved with a transesophageal echo or a CT scan. And in, another point is that independent of the CHADS-VAS score, following a cardioversion, they need to be on four weeks of uninterrupted anticoagulation. Now, I just want to quickly review um, some kind of basic physiology of the heart and how these medications that we use interact. So some of the medicines you'll see that we use for atrial fibrillation include flecainide and propafenone, which is in the yellow box, which is a sodium channel blocker and affects phase zero of the heart. The reason I show this is this is the rapid depolarization phase of the heart. And these medicines can be very effective and can bind avidly at high heart rates. Now the other medicines, the class three medicines in the green box, including sotalol, and then in addition, dofetilide and dronaterone, affect the potassium channel, which are more effective in the repolarization and can actually have more effects when the patients are bradycardic. This chart here outlines the main medications that we use. The top row are class 1C or sodium channel blocking agents such as flecainide and propafenone. When we use these agents, we need to ensure the patients do not have structural heart disease such as heart failure, prior heart attack, or a coronary disease. This is actually a black box warning not to use the medicine. 
We also need to make sure they don't have significant conduction disease. And the ways we evaluate this is with a baseline EKG, and then after they've started the medicine, performing a stress test. These agents must be taken with an AV nodal blocking agent, such as a beta blocker or a calcium channel blocker, because as I discussed, they bind more avidly to the heart cell when the heart is depolarizing quickly. So there can be toxicities at rapid rates. The other agents are class three agents or potassium blockers, such as sodalol, dofetilide, and dronaterone. Important assessments with these patients are their QT interval and renal function. And contraindications include end-stage renal disease or chronic kidney disease with a creatinine clearance of less than 30, prolonged QTs or bradyarrhythmias. Importantly for dronaterone, this should not be used in patients who have symptomatic heart failure, NYHA class four, or permanent atrial fibrillation, as there's a higher mortality when using this medicine. Amiodarone actually spans multiple classes, including sodium, potassium, calcium channel, and beta blocker. We do need to monitor thyroid, liver, and pulmonary function throughout the duration of the medicine. And it does have many side effects, including potentially photosensitivity, ocular, and neurologic involvement. Now, some people may ask, why don't we just use rate control based on the results of the AFFIRM trial? Now, this was a trial in 2002 that had essentially 4,000 patients randomized to medical therapy for rate versus rhythm control. And in the rhythm control strategy, there were higher pulmonary events, gastrointestinal events, bradycardic events, and prolonged QTC. And the main conclusion from this study was that the management of atrial fibrillation with a rhythm control strategy offers no survival advantage over a rate control strategy. And there are potential advantages, such as a lower risk of adverse drug events with a rate control strategy. So why would we even consider choosing a rhythm control strategy? Well, I would argue a lot has changed since 2002. One is that only 14 patients of the 4,000 had an ablation procedure. Additionally, only 62% of the patients had a therapeutic INR throughout this trial. So there would, you would presume higher rates of stroke as well. Now, five-year follow-up data showed that there was a greater risk of heart failure in a rate control strategy of 21 to 16%, an increase in total mortality, cardiac mortality, and hospitalization, and that the risk factors for developing heart failure were a heart rate of greater than 80 beats per minute and with a high atrial fibrillation burden. I have two images of the two different types of atrial fibrillation ablations commonly used today. On the left is radio frequency, or what we call heating energy, and on the right is a cryoballoon delivery, um, where you see an inflated balloon, and there's contrast injected into the pulmonary vein with the balloon occluding the vein. Um, these two strategies have been studied, and at least in paroxysmal, have been shown to be an equivalent strategy and effective. So what about ablation outcomes? There have been many trials looking at this. One is the Cabana trial, which was a large randomized controlled trial that showed no difference in all-cause mortality, but there was an improvement in hospitalization and atrial fibrillation recurrence. Specifically in patients with heart failure, there is shown a mortality benefit, and this was shown in the CASEL-AF study. 
Now, more recent studies have looked at timing and symptom burden. Um, and the EAST-AF-NET4 study showed that an early rhythm control strategy, early intervention, um, reduced stroke by one-third and total mortality by 16%. Additionally, a very recent study, the STOP-AF, showed a significant improvement of symptoms when comparing ablation to antiarrhythmic, which is within the whole rhythm control strategy realm. Now, what about safety from ablation? Cabana is one of our largest studies. And when we look at the safety profile for ablation, it actually does better than antiarrhythmic drug therapy um, in terms of death, disabling stroke, um, the serious bleeding, and cardiac arrest. So what's on the horizon for an interventional management for atrial fibrillation? Pulsed field ablation is a new energy delivery strategy which is being studied, which has benefits of potentially affecting only the heart tissue and not affecting nearby structures. This is still under investigation, um, but there are potentially benefits to avoiding damage to the esophagus, the phrenic nerve, reduction in pericardial effusion, um, and more studies are needed to know the safety of this, potentially if there's any effects with the coronary arteries. So just some conclusions from our talk today. Atrial fibrillation is a, remains a significant burden for patients in the medical system. One of the most important strategies for managing atrial fibrillation is to ensure patients with high stroke risk are on anticoagulation. Now, risk factor modification and non-pharmacological management can have a significant improvement on the burden and progression of atrial fibrillation. But if those are ineffective, rhythm control strategies, such as management with ablation or medications, are both safe and efficacious and will likely have a larger role in the future. That was perfect. Thank you guys both so much. It was really nice to hear all of the changes and the new data that has come out in AFib. And thanks for highlighting some of the updates in the management as well. Well, Sal, um, you know, Jim had mentioned that the risk of stroke is independent of AFib type. If that's the case, why is it so important to reduce the burden of AFib? Uh, one of the things that's very important is preventing heart failure. Um, mm -hmm. We can use anticoagulation to prevent stroke, but data has shown that when patients stay in AFib for a long period of time, they can develop heart failure, either systolic heart failure or heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Mm -hmm. And when they develop this, they actually have a higher mortality and more symptoms. Okay. So it's still important to try to reduce the amount of time they're in AFib. Absolutely. Okay. And Jim, I know you mentioned that recently they've changed the guidelines to anticoagulate women at a higher CHADS-FAST score. And you mentioned that's partly due to the fact that women who are younger and have fewer risk factors um, don't have, have as high stroke risk. So is that recommendation to do the higher number CHADS-FAST score only for the younger women or for any CHADS-FAST score level? So right, so right now, the new change is that for women, it's a CHAS-VASC score of three and above, um, who really weren't anticoagulation. And again, that becomes because women have been shown that it's, it's really a more of a significant risk, um, this female gender, in women who are 75 and older, or if they have two or more other non-gender-related risk factors. For women who have a lower risk of stroke, like a CHAS-VASC of zero mm -hmm. or one, 
they actually have a stroke risk that's fairly similar to men. So that's why they really don't need anticoagulation at a lower okay. rate. Okay, that makes sense. All right, perfect. That was wonderful. Thank you guys both so much. We're going to finish up today's program with a final key point from each of you. Jim? So remember, the risk of stroke in AFib is really dependent on um, the CHAZVASC score, not necessarily the amount or type of AFib. And Sal? The management of atrial fibrillation continues to evolve, and I anticipate in the future we'll have more techniques to help manage patients from a rhythm control strategy. So keeping a close eye on your patients and looking out for this disease is of utmost importance. Thanks for joining us today. For our audience, don't forget to log on to the website to claim your CME credit and your ABIM MOC points. Join me again next week to hear about hepatocellular carcinoma with my guest, Dr. Lon LeConte. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.